Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. Join us for an informative discussion on the competitive opportunities and challenges for businesses and individuals in the evolution of our cities aiming toward a more dynamic, connected, and optimally managed infrastructure. Business in Vancouver presents its Smart Cities panel October 18th at the Vancouver Club. Later on on today's show, we're going to discuss with the tech panel everything from Chinese computer chips to potential Canadian content quotas for streaming services like Netflix. But first, Tantalist Lab CEO Dan Sutton, he joins us to discuss the challenges that lay ahead for the cannabis sector just a week out from legalization. When recreational cannabis is officially legalized next Wednesday, BC residents will have access to just one above-board brick-and-mortar retail store. And it's in Kamloops. I suppose you can uh, go around many storefronts in Vancouver and find some shops that are going to be selling cannabis. But a lot of the burden is going to be falling on e-commerce purchases. And it really makes us wonder how prepared is both British Columbia as well as the country for the legal trade. Joining us today, it's Dan Sutton, CEO of Tantalus Labs. Dan, great to have you back on the show. Glad to be here. So how does, I guess, BC's brick-and-mortar presence stack up going into this versus other jurisdictions across Canada? I know for a fact we have one establishment that's going to be ready. Uh, maybe that just tells you the story that we're wondering about. <laughs> well, we certainly are a bit behind the eight ball. I think we rank among the weakest in terms of deployment of infrastructure as a generality, deployment of policy even. Um, and so it's just been a function of BC being a bit slow, a bit cautious the whole way along. Now, I don't think it's all bad news because I do understand that there are probably over 100 private stores around the province that are at some level of process uh, of registering through their through their application process to become private retailers. The problem is a lot of them are stuck in the process. A lot of them have hit road bumps. This is a new licensing system. And as somebody who was licensed for for cannabis over the course of five years, starting six years ago, I understand that both the regulator and the operator will be figuring things out as they go. I really hope that we see 20, 30 stores, especially in metropolitan cities, sort of by the end of the year, that might be an aggressive target. Um, but nonetheless, they're they're working they're working to make it happen. And as you say, there is uh, a variety of e-commerce channels that users or patients can can go through to be able to acquire cannabis in the meantime. Yeah, and I believe is it Shopify that is going to be kind of the platform that the BC government is going to be relying on? Because I I do wonder how that's going to kind of stack up versus kind of the other options that say medical users have had up until this point. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, Shopify is an amazing company and a, a really brilliant tech story. I think in in Canada and in our in our tech landscape, they certainly are highly sophisticated. They have large teams of developers. They can deploy quickly, um, and I think there will be some inherent user experience advantages to going with such a top tier provider. I'm glad that so many provinces across the country are going with Shopify. But that said, whenever you gear up 
an e-commerce platform uh, the first time. And, and I know because Tantalus Labs only launched, you know, about a, a month and a half ago with our e-commerce platform, no matter how polished you've got it, no matter how much you've worked on it, there's user experience kinks that needs to need to be worked through. And so from an e-commerce perspective, apples to apples, it's likely that most of the licensed producers also because they're private enterprises and self-interested in the functionality of those user experiences would have at least more mature programs. Do you think really the the burden is going to be on e-commerce moving forward just with regards to the the minimal brick and mortar presence that's going to be available for most British Columbians outside of Vancouver proper? I think it will all scale kind of congruently. It's important to note that only about 35% of users prefer e-commerce, like outright self-report as wanting to use e-commerce over going to a retail store. So you do have demand for both channels there. Uh, we'll see the stores scale up slowly. We'll see the e-commerce metrics scale up slowly. And I think it's also likely that we'll see ACMPR licensed producers acquire more patients as well. But keep in mind that this is a zero-sum game. And I think at least at the outset, most established cannabis users, if you're substituting them away from the illicit market and towards the regulated market, that's a win. Judging by the amount of cannabis that the BCLDB has secured, I mean, they only have perhaps 18 or 20,000 kilograms in hand for next year. And keep in mind that news last week that the top four, the top four of those suppliers have not been able to meet their initial delivery dates. That represents about 10% of the aggregate cannabis demand in British Columbia, even at its full capacity, 20,000 relative to 200,000 kilos a year is sort of demanded here. And so there's a lot of people that are being supplied by the black market and that black market will continue to persist. We just have to put one foot in front of the other, trying to erode it percentage by percentage, day over day, week over week. And yeah. I think that's what's going to happen. Just Edie, uh, adding on top of that, we do have a new report out from the C.D. Howe Institute, which estimates that I believe 30 to 60% of demand will be met going forward through the last quarter of this year. So it looks as if there's going to be this continued proliferation of the black market going forward in British Columbia and the rest of Canada too. 30 to 60% is an aggressive target. I mean, we've run very elaborate models. Talents Labs has a sophisticated financial team and staff, and, and we've been trying to figure this out as best as we can because it directly affects our business. And what hasn't been effectively discounted for in the trajectory of especially large pubcos is execution risk. It's very simple. Building cannabis greenhouses, building cannabis production facilities, commissioning them, operating them at a, a smaller scale first to then ramp them up. These things take time and they often take a lot longer than people assume that they will. So from an industry side on the supply, from a regulatory side, it's all going to be a bit slower and steadier. However, there are select licensed producers that um, really do have an, an effective and proven track record with their user base. There's people that are incredibly loyal to those ACMPR suppliers. And I think positively, we've seen some LPs come out and say, look, no matter what happens, our medical patients are important to us. We're self-interested in them being important to us because they we, direct, we directly interact with them. So we have a better feedback loop. Uh, and I think that that statement of industry standing behind its, its medical priorities has actually been really positive for the whole industry. Uh, I know Tantalus Labs is actively onboarding medical users. And if you have a consistent and therapeutic need for cannabis, like that really is going to be your most consistent access strain. Um, but yeah, once again, 
the ACMPR will continue to grow as well. All of these things will continue to grow and evolve and iterate. And I think by the end of the year, hopefully we'll see a bit more action. And certainly through the first two quarters of 2019, I think uh, it's going to be an exciting time for BC retailers and it's going to be an exciting time for licensed producers in this province as well. Well, we, we focus maybe a lot on the customer facing issues going forward, but for you as a licensed producer, I, I mean, is there anything that's making you anxious going forward with legalization day? What, what, what is keeping you up at night right now? So Tantalus Labs is a, is a relatively small producer. Um, we have 75,000 active feet right now, and, and we may be able to grow that to about 120,000 over the course of the next two years. But that's another construction project and a large priority for a small business. So I think our greatest concerns are that we're not going to have enough. Everybody seems to want more from us, and, and we uh, have a, a, a really exciting sort of first reaction to our products from our users. Uh, but that also can be daunting as well because you're like, okay, well, a lot of people are going to have high expectations of us. And I think my, my favorite thing that I come back to when I'm, when I'm sort of concerned about how quickly scaling pressure is going to be on us is that we have had a really successful crop environment. There are a lot of licensed producers, especially in greenhouses, that are struggling with crop loss right now. They're struggling with, with sicknesses, diseases, outbreaks, pests, and, Somehow, I think due to a lot of discipline in the design process at SunLab, we've sustained less than 5% aggregate crop loss. So I think the agricultural validity of these firms should be keeping them up at night, should be keeping the industry up at night, because a lot of people have not executed in an agricultural context the way that they uh, intimated they would. But at least at Tantalus Labs, we're, we're getting good at growing cannabis that is exciting to our user. And uh, I think that despite that, there's going to be continued and sustained scaling pressure on us. And more businesses die from drinking from a fire hose than starvation is actually how my understanding of startups plays out. Well, and you'll have to forgive my ignorance, but I'm genuinely curious about this. With regards to you guys, you guys are greenhouse focused. So I wonder as we get into these uh, cloudier months, is that going to have an impact? Like, are you already past the high season of production at this point? Definitely. So for us, that's mostly a story about yields. We do gear down our yields, perhaps even 20 or 25% off their top line averages in the middle of summer uh, because we're using supplemental lighting to extend day length and that lighting is just not of the same quality as sunlight. But nonetheless, it's it's not a substantial ramp down. We've, we've factored in the smoothing and, and figured out how much we can produce aggregate in a year is really what's important. Uh, but yes, we will have less cannabis productivity because we produce seasonally and that is a function of nature. If you want greenhouse grown cannabis, uh, you can't grow six cycles of uniform plants every year. Year. That's kind of the, the truth of it. I got to ask you this, uh, just as we get into, I guess, the, this last stretch where you know recreational cannabis is no longer legalized, do, do we have any, I guess, insights to share with regards to what the future of the illegal dispensaries are likely going to be here in a city like Vancouver, where I, I know they are pursuing efforts to, to get them recognized by various levels of government? Yeah, really interesting. And we haven't seen it as much of an election issue despite a municipal election going on in Vancouver right now. And I think it's because it's just sort of politically untouchable. Whether you say we're going to shut them all down, you're not going to get a ton of people that really advocate for that message. And there will be people that are super fearful of it. And then if you say we're going to perpetuate them all, then that, you know, might mess with another uh, voting demographic. So 
political caginess as we sometimes see at these weirdly timed kind of intersections between legislation and then also elections. Um, but I, I think it's very likely that we'll see hopefully the top 15 or 20% do, uh, switch over. There are some sort of culturally impactful dispensaries in Vancouver and people with great community followings that are, are known to represent factual or, or well-informed information anyway. Um, but there's a lot of dispensaries that don't have a future here. And a lot of dispensaries that maybe knew that they didn't, they put up, you know, quick walls, a quick desk. They were selling weed as fast as they could for as much as they could and, and making hay while the sun shines. And for those people who didn't really take a long-term vision on what the next 20 years of the cannabis retail market could look like in terms of opportunity, I don't think they're going to hack it. I don't think they're going to make it through. I, I don't think their principles would vet, you know, pass criminal record checks in most cases. So it's a reality of what the demographic of cannabis retailer is going to look like in the next five years versus the last five. And I think it's going to be overwhelmingly better, changed for the positive. I mean, this is purely anecdotal on my part, but I, I did notice a few weeks ago that a local dispensary that was across the street from my local community center, it did shut down and it had been there for quite a while. But I, I just don't know how they would be able to make that argument that you know they can exist being so close to a, a community center, which has been very explicitly kind of uh, put out uh, of what you can do with regards to city of Vancouver bylaws. Well, even if they did continue to exist, I very much believe that cannabis sold in a British Columbian cannabis store or private retailer, it comes with a lab test that validates that it's clean, that it's absent mold and pesticides. It comes with statistical understanding of potencies and predictability of use and hopefully some degree of vetting on, on what that strain name actually means. Whereas dispensaries, they're not held to account for any of this. You get some that self, self-interestedly want to, uh, you know, present more information and inform their customer. And those are probably the ones that are best prepared to survive. But for the most part, dispensaries cannot provide even a, a name of the grower, let alone a lab test, let alone any, any semblance of understanding of where in the supply chain that's been picked up. And so I think straightly, straight from a user, per, user preference perspective, we're going to see a lot of switching over to retail. This happened in Washington state. It happened in Oregon, nobody thought that the illicit dispensaries that were operating in, in Washington would continue, or, or everyone thought that they would continue to be better priced and more competitive, and, and yet over the course of about a year and a half, all of them evaporated. But what they are able to do is supply, supply, and that, that's going to be a big question mark. I'm just wondering, as we wrap up here, do you have any estimate about when, I guess, the the legal industry is going to be able to gear up and be able to produce the amount of supply that we need just and i think a lot of it comes down to how many licenses are being given out by the federal government but a realistic timeline in your mind when are we going to be able to meet i guess the demand that's out there <laughs> well you said as we wrap this up so i know i've got to make it a, a somewhat concise <laughs> go for it. i can go speak, for it. I can speak yeah. for half an hour on this topic but i personally am probably more bearish on duration or trajectory to market equilibrium than most analysts that I've spoken to, certainly. And then other cannabis industry CEOs who are sort of paid to be to be bullish and aggressive. Um, and I think that everybody's kind of been drinking the same Kool-Aid. The, the problem is, is that once again, with the lack of discounting effectively for execution risk, especially in timelines, and then also just 
fairly enough, a lack of agricultural competency on executives across the LP space. There aren't a lot of people that come from big ag. And I think the firms that do understand that like crop risk management is the name of your game. That is all the risk you have. You factor in regulatory risk, stock market risk. It's easy to get distracted from that. But unless you've built your entire enterprise around preserving the health of every batch you grow, uh, you know, to all the way through its life cycle, it's really hard to figure that out at scale, you know, building an airplane as you fly, I guess. And so as a result, my personal trajectory on equilibrium, especially considering the growth in potential market scale that comes with marketing regulation, I mean, it may be a, a million kilos this year. Estimates have been kind of a low, as low as 700 and as high as 1.5 million kilos of aggregate Canadian demand. Uh, I, I think personally, that's 36 months out. And I think it's going to be it's not going to be many of the firms who you think it is. The firms that seem to be leading this conversation, some of them will prove themselves ineffective. And we'll have to see new entrants and new firms and, and new opportunities coming to scale to meet that demand. Uh, so it's an exciting time in the cannabis industry, but I think we're we're all in for just one foot in front of the other and a slow, steady ride. So Dan, I think next time you're going to be on the show, we'll, we'll get a better idea of how this rollout went out uh, with regards to uh, the legalization date. It's going to be a fun conversation then as well. But for now, I want to thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much. That's Dan Sutton, CEO of Tanless Labs. And stay with us, the BIV Tech Panel. They're going to talk to us all about everything from Netflix quant uh, content quotas to Chinese spy ships on Apple's and Amazon's servers. And joining us today for the weekly BIV technology panel, it is Ali Pordat, CEO of Progressa. He's calling in from Toronto this week. And Linda Fawkes, she is the CEO of Glue Technology Society. Ali, Linda, great to have both you guys on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So let's start off with uh, eBay. It's now accusing Amazon of poaching sellers using eBay's own internal messaging service. And I'll say this, I, I actually used to uh, work for eBay corporate about uh, a decade ago. I was actually investigating fraud there. And I can tell you this, um, they are very productive of their top sellers. They want to view them pretty much as gold. They'll do everything they can to make sure that their needs are being met. And I, I think the idea that Amazon could be trying to get them would just infuriate the higher-ups over at eBay. But uh, Ali, for you, uh, what do you make of a, a story like this where we see uh, some pretty intense com competition going on in e-commerce? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually looked at this from sort of two different perspectives. I tried to look at it from eBay's perspective and then Amazon's perspective as well. So, you know, first question that comes to mind is, are there, are there sort of laws in place to... Uh, prevent businesses from soliciting other businesses' uh, customers? I mean, mm -hmm. that's the first question. Is there laws actually protecting businesses from this stuff? Or has, for example, the Trump uh, administration sort of deregulated enough where this is not even, this is a non-issue? So that was sort of the first thing that went through my mind is what are the rules around this? Because, you know, is this business espionage? Is this, you know, a trespassing? If, if, if uh, you're sitting on eBay's website for, for other reasons than buying products from eBay, those are the questions that uh, it's really hard to sort of come up with a conclusion without knowing those answers. And Linda, from your perspective, I, I mean, does eBay have every reason to be incredibly upset or, or is this more about, uh, as Ali was alluding to, uh, the, the spirit of the law versus the rule of the law here? Well, I understood that uh, in California that 
Amazon's in trouble because they uh, misuse the private computer system rule. You're not allowed to use someone's private computer system to do this sort of thing. So eBay's private uh, system was used. And that's where Amazon got into trouble. I think this is just the way it goes, boys. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of companies out there trying to sell product. E-commerce is booming. Amazon wants them. Walmart wants them. eBay wants them. This is life, I think. And, and, and from like what I'm sharing now, it isn't from any knowledge I gleaned like a decade ago working for the company. But I, I do know that you know right now eBay is say bleeding a lot of its top sellers and its top buyers versus Amazon, which is quite successful at retaining and, and you know getting a lot of these people. It, it makes me kind of wonder why Amazon even needs to bother to do this. Like I, I kind of think that Amazon can kind of sell itself on its own merits without actively seeking out these sellers to poach. Well, we've got 89% of eBay's products now are fixed price. So they're going hard after Amazon. And it'll be interesting to see when Walmart really starts to shake up this space. Yeah, it's it's really not like an auction site anymore, like the way that we thought of it back in the 1990s. It's very much going in kind of that Amazon model. All all of them are going in that direction. I mean, even Walmart has a substantial amount of its online uh, inventory as third-party inventory now. It's not even Walmart inventory. So. Uh, they're all heading in the direction of Amazon, trying to drive down prices where they can and just create as much competitive advantage as they can. And, and I think that's the thing here is Amazon needs more third-party products to resell. They need to stop warehousing stuff and creating Amazon-only products. And so going after these third-party guys is where the um, the competition is happening. And, and so it's, they're easy poaching over from eBay back over to Amazon is pretty easy, I would guess. Well, another Amazon story that maybe we can talk about. Uh, both Amazon and Apple are denying reports uh, following a Bloomberg investigation that uh, China has managed to plant spy chips on these companies' servers. There's been a lot of heavy denials. And I, I'm just curious from your own perspective here, Linda, what do you think the implications are for A, say tech giants, as well as B, our own data safety going forward? Well, I have two concerns on this. Um, I rely, I'm a lay person when it comes to media. I rely on the big media guys to provide me with factual content. I rely on the Wall Street Journal. I, I up until now, have relied on Bloomberg. I'm concerned that this article wasn't fact-checked. The, the one named source in the article is saying he wasn't contacted at all for fact-checking. Mm. So in, in an article like this, my second big area of concern is it's throwing... Um, fear into people about the quality of our cloud infrastructure. How uh, safe are we with our data out there? Are we being hacked by a nation state? This is an awful implication. And so if we're going to make those big, very disturbing um, allegations, they better be well fact-checked. So I'm I'm concerned on a, a lot of levels here. Well, uh, Ali, for you, are, are you skeptical of the claims being made by Bloomberg here? Or are you leaning more towards the denials that we're hearing from both Amazon and Apple right now? I am. I'm definitely leaning towards those denials. I mean, this is very, very difficult to do and execute, actually practically execute for the, for the Chinese government or any Chinese entity to, you know, put chips in these devices and not have any of the data detected transferring out. It's just highly impractical um, in today's environment where these large cloud infrastructure companies are able to monitor data and where it comes and goes to every minute bit that goes in and out. It, this would be very, very hard 
uh, for them to actually execute on. So I, I totally agree with Linda. I think this is uh, p- potentially uh, a political and politically motivated article, uh, which is, uh, you know, not surprisingly two months before the midterm elections in the U.S. And I think, uh, you know, you have to worry about, uh, again, uh, the Russian government, potentially other governments trying to sway this election uh, and putting out false news. Uh, they have a, they have a, a history of doing it with social media. Maybe now they're they're you know they're going to put out claims in the news. This could be the next evolution of that. Well, I would say from a media perspective, uh, Bloomberg very much considered a, a credible source. I'm not saying that it, it's uh, impossible for them to have a bad sources. That absolutely happens within media as well. But going back to the fact checking you know question that you have uh linda there you, you know it, it's possible like maybe a mistake was made i also totally buy the fact that's apple and, and amazon i mean of course their immediate reaction is going to deny that something this grievous has happened to their company exactly i'm i i think that joe fitzpatrick is one of the named sources and he talks about uh in a podcast last week about the emails he's gone back and forth with bloomberg on saying you know, when I gave you these uh, Bloomberg writers, when I gave you these situations, these were hypothetical possibilities about a hardware hack. Uh, I wasn't talking about an actual hack. And the little chip I showed you is actually not, it was just pulled out of a catalog to show you what a chip looks like at rice grain size. So all of that made it into the article. So uh, yeah, it's it's disturbing on a lot of levels. And I think Ali and I agree that this is probably uh something that has not happened at this level. And I also hear that this is going to be a software or firmware attack. It's not going to come through the hardware hacking end. Fingers crossed, because I I use products from both those companies. And it's a very concerning thing if I'm a user dependent on that and that my data could be at risk here. Um, One of the other interesting things going on uh, this past week, though, is that the European Union is introducing content quotas for streaming services like Netflix, Amazon Prime Video, those kinds of guys there. And I think this is something that Canadians should be paying a lot of attention to because I I wrote about this on the newspaper last month, but we are expecting something similar to happen here in Canada with content quotas. But look at it. You've got these streaming audiences uh, that are being absorbed by these large giants here, and we can't really compete. Like a lot of these European countries cannot compete with Hollywood. Canada cannot compete with Hollywood. I, I'm very much a free market sort of person, but you really do have to introduce ways in which we can retain a lot of the cultural components that that are very part and parcel with what we're doing in terms of broadcasting. But what are your expectations, Ali, with regards to, I guess, content quotas going forward in non-American countries? Yeah, uh, Tyler, this is a, a tricky one. I mean, I, I see both sides of the argument on this one as well. You know, there's the free market argument for sure. But at the same time, you want to protect culture and Canadian interests. And, and the Canadian government has a track record, uh, you know, with the CBC and other uh, Canadian content ch- uh, channels that, um, you know, I think this, the CRTC is, I mean, on top of for many years. Uh, so, you know, I think at the end of the day, what's going to happen is you're going to see a movement uh, towards uh, content quotas in Canada, just like in the e- uh, EU. The EU has been sort of ahead of the race on many fronts. Uh, they, I don't know if they're understanding the risks ahead of time or they're just having the open conversation. But other governments, uh, this, is, this won't be the first example of other governments following suit uh, relatively quickly because there's no... Uh, there's no hiding at Netflix and uh, these other uh, content companies are starting to take over the world. 
Well, I think one of the big key issues here, though, is if you're a broadcaster here in Canada, you are paying into a media fund that goes and produces content. But these streaming services from the United States, they are not paying into these funds, even though they are absorbing more and more of these viewers. So I think there are, you know, some considerable you know, implications for what this means going forward. I don't know, when it comes to the content that you're consuming, though, Linda, I, I mean, do you want it to be dictated to you in such a way? Where do you fall down on this argument? I would like, I like the fact that uh, Netflix has had to give us half a billion dollars to create content here. Uh, I think the mm-hmm. $25 million uh, writing program in British Columbia is a great step. I think that Canadian content providers can use all the help they can get to give them time to create content that can go global. So I believe that this is a good thing. We're going to need it. And we have um, so many smart, creative brains in this country that we can, with the right opportunity, really perform on Netflix globally, not just within Canada. Yeah, and, and I, I would add, Tyler, I mean, that the leverage is, is with the government, right? It's, Netflix doesn't really have the leverage. Uh, and, and, you know, the Canadian government, there'll be other large governments that will really drive this. Um, if the EU decides to drive it like they are, then... Netflix won't have a choice unless they want to walk away from almost a billion uh, uh, active uh, users or a potential uh, viewer. Yeah, it kind of seems as if maybe the, the Wild West days are waning for these sorts of services. And I think these services actually realize that and acknowledge that. And that's why we had Netflix come out with the federal government last year and openly made that commitment to half a billion dollars with regards to future productions here in Canada. So, uh, Ali, Linda, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That's Ali Pordad, CEO of Progressa, and Linda Faka, CEO of the Glue Technology Society. And that's it for BIV today. Thank you for listening. You can find our archives on iTunes and Stitcher, and you can also find our news stories on BIV.com. We'll be back next time. <laughs>